we had no one in our family with any kind of immune deficiency. So Mm -hmm. it just kind of seemed unreal. Uh, Also being in the field I'm in, a lot of times we would have these patients come in and find out abnormal things with their babies. And I know what that's like for them to sit there and hear bad news. So it kind of put me in their position. I could, I just, I just kind of took me back like a deja vu of their experiences was now me as the patient. Hello and hola friends. Welcome to the Medicine, Marriage, and Money podcast, the only podcast for dual physician couples who want to achieve marital interdependence and financial freedom together. In this podcast, you will learn how to show up as the best version of yourself so that you can love intentionally and build a stronger and more financially savvy relationship with your spouse. And I am your host, a physician mom, a doctor's wife, and a life coach, Dr. Kate Mangona. Welcome, bienvenidos. Story time brought to you by locumstory.com. Today we'll be reading One Job, Two Job. One Job, Two Jobs, Red Blob, No Job, Elective Doc, Emergency Doc, Summon Overstock, Summon Out of Stock. This doc is too abused. This doc is underused. This doc can't get sick. Say, let's try a brand new trick. For all the docs about to cry, here's an idea you can try. Look into a locum tenens assignment, a really great option you might find it. Don't forget locums pays much better, and you can find assignments in any type of weather. With all this new info trapped up in your thinker, go to drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash locum story and use your mouse to tinker. It's here you'll find the unbiased answers you are after, so you can decide if locum tenens is in your next chapter. Please help me welcome our guest on today's show of Medicine, Marriage, and Money, my best friend from the third grade, Laura Hall. Laura Hall is a high-risk obstetrical sonographer at the Perinatal Specialists of Kansas City. She is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology, fetal echocardiograms, and abdomen vascular ultrasound. For the past six years, she has worked in high-risk perinatal sonography. Laura is also the loving wife of a software engineer and the supportive mother of two young children, a four-year-old boy and an almost one-year-old girl with SCID, severe combined immunodeficiency. Now, receiving news that her daughter would spend many months of her first life in the hospital, the empathy that Laura has for her patients was strengthened, especially as they... She saw some of them learn of abnormalities on their routine OB ultrasounds. Laura has found her experience with her daughter, Emmy, to further her passion in the field of sonography with the goal of giving the highest of care to each patient with their growing families. Please welcome my best friend from the third grade and ever since, Laura Hall. Yay! Thanks for having me on your show, Kate. Well, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. I'm so glad you, you know, that you're here. Yeah. That we're together. We're actually together right now since I am still on maternity leave when we're recording this in Kansas City, staying with my parents for the past two months. So it's been super, super nice to see my best friend, Laura, during this time that we're all kind of trying to emerge from, you know, the Delta and uh, get back to reality. And, you know, you can even talk about more how so why it's even more important that you are vaccinated and wear masks because of 
because of your daughter, right? Yeah. So tell us a little bit about who you are and, you know, what, what you're doing these days. So right now I am staying home a little more. Um, my daughter, we can get into it more, but she was hospitalized with um, no immune system for several months. And so she just needs a little extra care. So I took a break from work and am being a stay-at-home mom right now. And when did you find out about her diagnosis? So what's nice about her diagnosis now is they do a newborn screen um, at, for every baby in the United States at birth. So they check to see if they have any of these abnormalities. There's a whole list. I'm not familiar with all of them, but one of them was for severe combined immune deficiency. I had heard about it in the past, but uh, we really got a good education in it once our daughter was diagnosed with it at five days old. Yeah. I mean, I could imagine your kind of your whole life got turned upside down. What kind of things like flashed through your mind when when uh, you got the call? Was it a call or were you notified at the office or how did that work? Well, we had been home less than 24 hours with mm -hmm. her. Um, we had had a great first pre, not prenatal. We had had a great first uh, pediatrician appointment. Mm -hmm. Everything looked great. I was home and a couple hours later, I got a call from the same pediatrician saying that we needed to come in right away, that she had tested positive for SCID on mm -hmm. her newborn screen and she needed to have another blood test to confirm. So at that point we went immediately to the hospital mm -hmm. and got her blood drawn and had to wait a very long three hours for those results to come back. Yeah, so I mean, what were you thinking at that point? I mean, I kind of wanted to think it was all a mistake and that they got it wrong. Um, we had a son who was three at the time who was very normal. And um, we had no one in our family with any kind of immune deficiency. So mm -hmm. it just kind of seemed unreal. Uh, also, being in the field I'm in, a lot of times we would have these patients come in and find out abnormal things with their babies. And I know what that's like for them to sit there and hear bad news. So it kind of put me in their position. I could, mm -hmm. I just, I it just kind of took me back like a deja vu of their experiences was now me as the patient. That's right. So yeah. So as an OB, as a high risk OB sonographer, I mean, you've been doing that for six years now is, and I know you scan your babies like every day, right? Oh yeah. We had looked at, <laughs> we had looked at both my pregnancies a lot. Um, you know, there's not a lot of downtime at our office, but if, we have a few minutes at lunch. A lot of my coworkers would say, okay, just come in here. Let's just take a peek. So mm -hmm. she had been looked at a lot, mm -hmm. but there's no way to tell, you know, that a baby would have skid. Right. You can't yeah. tell the immune system by that. So we just knew her, all her organs looked really normal mm -hmm. and um, she was developing normal when I was pregnant, but there's no way to tell the immune system. Mm -hmm. So so once it became, when did it become more of a reality? Like when did it hit you that, that it wasn't a mistake? Um, I think when they came back in and said the results still showed that she had very low T cell count. Mm -hmm. um, I 
think the normal is within is well over a thousand and mm -hmm. she had i believe like 20 25 t-cells at the time um and then immediately they put her in um a little bassinet that closes on the top so no uh germs can get to her and they admitted her to the hospital immediately so that kind of brought it home but i think you still just can't believe it for several mm -hmm. weeks that this is how you're spending your maternity leave yeah in the hospital yeah so you, were you actually living in the hospital during your maternity leave we were there every day and my husband is fortunate enough that he can do his job remotely mm -hmm. so he was with me just working in her hospital room um and for several nights at first we did spend the night with her it feels very weird to leave your baby. You don't want to leave them. They're so tiny at that point. Um, but after we talked to one of our phys the physicians who was helping her, she said, we need to get sleep. If we don't get sleep. We could get sick and get her sick. So after that, we started going home every night and spent time with our son and right. And at which, the hospital. which physician, what, what was this, uh, oncologist or pediatrician or who? this specific one was an infectious disease physician okay. from the children's hospital in the area. She was just coming to give her input. Um, okay. Skid is really, really rare. So we had a lot of physicians kind of scrambling, trying to figure out what to do next since it right. wasn't a common diagnosis. And you think, I mean, I, I remember when you said, I mean, this, that physician had a pretty big impact on you, right? She's like, you got to take care of yourself and you're you need to go home, get sleep. And like, without that physician telling you that, what do you think you would have done? I mean, I mean, she just kind of stared at me and pointed at me and said, you need to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. I see you. I see you're going to sit up worrying. I see mm -hmm. you're not going to sleep and you cannot do that. You have mm -hmm. to take care of yourself. She's like, get on an anti-anxiety medicine, take mm -hmm. a medicine so you can sleep because this is not an easy road and you need to be your best self to go yeah. into it. Um, I think when your kid is sick, even though she at the time seemed very healthy, um, when they're sick, you want to be with them and you mm -hmm. want all the control, but. But it just, wasn't going to be like a one week thing. I mean, right. what were the doctors telling you how long this road was going to last? Um, Actually, at first, there was a lot of they don't know. There was a lot of we don't know what the next step is. Um, her kind of immunodeficiency not only had low T cells, but it had actually normal um, NK and B cells, which mm -hmm. is kind of more rare in skid. Usually they're low on one of the others. So there was also uh, you said low T cells, but the B cells, B were... cells and NK were normal. Oh, were normal. Okay. Um, which made them think that she might need a thymus transplant, which was a whole other yeah. um, treatment. Mm -hmm. So at first it was kind of scrambling to do genetic testing and mm -hmm. trying to figure out what her real diagnosis was so we could move mm -hmm. forward. So what do you think was the hardest part about that, the, that initial week in the hospital? Like you knew she had something severely wrong with her and what do you do next? I think it, it was hard because first of all, I'm early postpartum. So you have all those emotions that are just normal. To, they go along when you just had a baby. I mean, when she was admitted, she was five days old. So it was very, very early. And then, um, also, you're just so scared you're going to be the one 
to cause her to have an illness. So we wore masks around her all the time. We wore gowns, we wore gloves. I never touched her skin. Oh, yeah. Um, so it was a very sterile environment. Never touched her skin for how long? I didn't, not until, you know, of course the day before we were admitted, I was all the time because I didn't know what she had, but. But that was only four or five days. Right, right. Yeah. right. And then when we finally got into. And you couldn't breastfeed anymore. Right. So when you have skid or when your baby has skid, they immediately tell you to stop breastfeeding and you have to do a blood test to see if you have CMV in your blood. Now that could be an active infection or antibodies. I had antibodies and therefore I wasn't allowed to breastfeed. So immediately had to cut her off from that, put her on formula. Um, but as far as when I got to touch her, we just were really careful. And then we went to an out of state hospital and they, where was that? So you're in Kansas city and you got Kansas transferred city. to to Cincinnati children's. Okay. Um, so we, we got there and they said, you can hold her just, you wash your hands and it was very scary. I didn't take off my mask. And it's also remember during COVID. Mm -hmm. So we were already used to wearing masks, but especially around her, I really made sure I always had a mask on. But I remember actually the first night getting to her um, in Cincinnati, holding her, I, I got a little teary eyed because I hadn't touched my baby's skin in almost a month. So she was a month old. Yeah, she okay. was exactly a month when she was transferred. Yeah. And did you feel like, what kind of emotional support were you getting during this time? Well, it came from a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. I think friends like mm -hmm. you and other people we know were really supportive. And also um, my family, my parents, my husband's parents, my husband. Um, Cincinnati Children's is actually, I don't know if every hospital is like that because I don't have the experience of being at every hospital, but at least there they have therapists that work only with the bone marrow transplant team mm -hmm. who are familiar with that. That was super helpful to immediately have that support. Social workers mm -hmm. were Did they have support. that in Kansas City? Not that I know of. Okay. Not that I know of. Um, I've asked about it before and I don't think it's the same kind of process, but okay. we didn't go through the whole transplant there. So mm -hmm. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but. But just like knowing that that was your diagnosis, you know, the first week and then there was kind of like no real um, emotional support besides that one doctor telling yes. you to go home and get your sleep. It was all kind of you, your friends, your family. Right. Not mm -hmm. at the at the hospital. I mean, we okay. had one physician in the pediatric ICU mm -hmm. who really I felt like advocated for Emmy mm -hmm. and really wanted to make sure she was getting the very best care and mm -hmm. he did not need to, but he checked in with us very often. Mm -hmm. So that felt a lot less alone. Mm, um, okay. He's even texted me recently and said, how is she doing? Wow. So he was amazing. He gave us the idea to go to Cincinnati children's mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. um, not, that any other hospital is not great. He just, this, they do, mm -hmm. they've seen a lot of skid cases. Right. And so, um, we just decided we are going to do that, which was, was rough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I can, I can't even imagine how, how rough it is just initially hearing it and then living with it for day after day for months, not knowing when it's going to end. And then like how, 
that would even affect my relationship with all the people in my life. How, right. how did that affect your relationship, you know, with the closest person in your life with, with your husband? I think at first, um, what's good about my husband and I is he's very sarcastic. He, t- he, you know, focuses on the light side of things. This was hard on both of us. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say that he was like, it's fine, but sarcastic in a more light, fun. Yes. Way, not like a bad way. Right. No, very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he keeps me laughing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is good. I think in the beginning part, especially and through transplant, I was very tense. I mean, you know how I can have, you know, get worried about things. And I think I always thought the worst thing was ha- was going to happen, but he was always there. Like mm-hmm. he never left my side. If I needed to talk to him, he would talk to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that we really, he's really an active player in the whole thing. Like mm-hmm. we, there came a point in transplant where the kids tend to get sicker and the hospital said, we want a parent to spend the night every mm-hmm. single night. And um, we decided as a team that we would switch nights. One night I would stay, one night he would stay. So every other night, one of us would get really good sleep. In Cincinnati. In Cincinnati. Right. Okay. So you, yeah, he was working remotely and you we're on your maternity leave. Right. Okay. So it was really helpful, but also at the same time, there was a night that she wasn't as stable and her oxygen kept dropping. And, um, it was my night to be with her, but I called him and I said, I'm scared. And he came Mm -hmm. to be with me at the hospital too, even though it's just a twin bed to sleep in, Mm -hmm. in the room, but we made it work so that we could be each other's support. Mm, and how long? So at this point, what was what was Emmy's prognosis? I know they didn't really know when she would or, you know, how long this journey would last. But did they say for sure she's going to make it through? Or I mean, what were they telling like at you? a month old? What were they saying? Or at what point? I guess at any process? point. Yeah, at any point. Um, and in the beginning, when we just heard skid, if you just Google, now I tell all my patients don't Google anything because you're going <laughs> you to find the before? worst. Oh, you did this before. You well, I, before, I did it the second they said she might have skid before yeah. I went to the hospital, right? Because mm-hmm. what are you going to do? I'm like, I think I remember this from school, but, you know, you start researching. And actually everything on the internet was researching. Researching, in quotes, yes, in quotes, in quotes. obviously. <laughs> Only the best sources, Google. <laughs> Um, but most sources did say 95% survival, right? So it wasn't a completely dire situation. Mm. Like she, she is going to die from this, but I think. I don't remember talking about that. I, I, I remember the fear of just her getting an infection. Right. And die. I, we were so focused. They said it says 95%, but then it's like, but that percentage goes down if they get sick at all. Yeah. At all. Yeah. So it was like, okay, well, she cannot get sick at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. this has got to be our goal in life. Yeah. Um, for her to stay healthy until she has transplant. Um, but also the whole thing was so crazy because you just have this little tiny baby that seems perfect and they're like, oh, and guess what? Usually this treatment they have to have chemotherapy. And then they have to have a bone marrow transplant. Well, I've heard of, obviously I've heard of chemo and that's very scary. You know, Mm -hmm. people get really sick from it. 
and a bone marrow transplant, I've heard of it, but I really wasn't familiar with the process at all. I mean, I've never known anybody who had a bone mm -hmm. marrow transplant. So to me, I was like, oh, is this a major surgery? Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know. What, what did it end up being? Did they you, know initially? Did they did they like say, no, this is how it's going to go? Or they said it could go a couple different ways. They said either the thymus transplant or the bone marrow transplant. Okay. But since thymus is much more difficult to get, usually mm -hmm. um, one thing about thymus transplants is it is not FDA approved right mm -hmm. now. And usually it's a two to three year wait. Mm -hmm. So you would have to stay at home, not see anybody for two to three years until your kid yeah. had that, that yeah, procedure. The and then maybe it wouldn't even work. You'd be That's, living in a bubble. Right. Um, so I think there was a lot more discussion about the process of a bone marrow transplant because mm -hmm. a lot of kids go through bone marrow transplant a year. Mm -hmm. So that process was explained to us pretty early on. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what we felt like we were going to, but there's always something in the back of our mind. What if they say they can't do the bone marrow transplant and we have to wait mm -hmm. for a thymus? Yeah. Was it going to be hard to find a match? Like how did that work? For the bone marrow? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think some people it can be. Mm -hmm. We were fortunate. We um, did a swab through Be The Match um, on myself, my husband, and my son. Mm -hmm. Our, we were hoping our son would be a full match uh, because if he was, he could be her donor and she wouldn't have to have chemotherapy. Mm. Um, but instead, and usually parents are half matches, so okay. they can be used, but it's not the preferred mm -hmm. method. So we uh, went to be the match and tried to find donors for her. And there were 40,000, 10 out of 10 matches, which is a lot, a lot. <laughs> So okay, that was really so she got great. somebody else's bone marrow. Um, no, so <laughs> that's how complicated this is. So in the beginning, they still were not sure if she needed a thymus. Mm -hmm. Should we wait for a thymus? It's a, such a long wait. She could get sick in the meantime. Mm -hmm. She has a brother who should be starting school. Mm -hmm. All this stuff. I know there's a lot of families out there waiting for a thymus transplant, and you know, it just kind of puts the whole family on hold. Mm -hmm. And our doctor had done a lot of research on her specific type of skid. And there, one of the patients, one of the 12 other patients with her kind of skid mm -hmm. had a successful bone marrow transplant. Wow. One. Mm -hmm. So that's what we were going off of this one success. Mm -hmm. um, we ended up deciding to do that. But if her thymus never started working, she needed more naive T cells mm -hmm. to fight infection. And there's more of that in cord blood. Okay. So she got cord, she got she cord got blood stem cells. So he explained to me, it's still called, he still would call it a bone marrow transplant. Okay. Um, but he said more accurately, it's a stem cell transplant. Both of them are stem cells. Okay. So the bone marrow transplant is what she had. She had one match, 10 out of 10 for bone marrow and the 40,000. Uh, or one, one 10 out of 10 for cord blood, 40,000 bone marrow transplant. Okay. Okay. So she, he grabbed the cord blood pretty fast. And, and, and then how long did this take? When was she able to get this at how, what age? They, our doctors felt pretty strongly that they wanted to do it soon, mm -hmm. but also um, infants organs are more mature at three months. Okay. So they like to wait till three months to do chemotherapy. 
And then you would have been off maternity leave by then. Yeah. So I had to take ex. Well, I went back to work for a few weeks when my husband was out in Cincinnati without me. Okay. And then to save time. And then I took more of my maternity leave later. And then I ended up taking a leave mm-hmm. thinking that for sure I would go back to work after mm-hmm. all of this. Yeah. Was that an easy decision? Um, like, did you just know you were going to just. Not at first. I had planned up until very many months into this process that I was going to go back to work. But uh, the chemotherapy on a baby is. Oh, and Ryan was going to stay and work remotely. Ryan was going to stay and work remotely. And I was going to go back eventually. Um, But it just, I just realized after a while that I was needed for Mm -hmm. her. She was really weak after transplant. She wasn't eating. And Mm -hmm. there was just a lot more. The plan was to have either my mother-in-law or my mom watch her. And it was, and my son. And it was just too much for one person. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, to watch the two of them together, right? right? Since your four-year-old wouldn't be able to go to school. Right, because he could bring back Mm -hmm. different Mm -hmm. illnesses to our daughter. And so how do you think this, um, you know, did this strengthen your marriage with Ryan? Or do you think it, um, it's just, it's always been so strong that it didn't even phase, it didn't even touch it? I think it did strengthen it. They say a lot of times if you have a sick kid, a lot of marriages end in divorce mm-hmm. after this kind of experience. I think very early on, maybe two days after we learned of her diagnosis, um, there's a lot of crying mm-hmm. uh, just because you're just so angry and so upset that this is happening. But I remember telling him, I don't want to break up. I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I want to be with you forever. And he's like, yeah, I do. too." You know? Yeah. So and, why, yeah. Why do you think? Um, they say that a lot of marriages will end in divorce. It's really, really stressful. It's to see your kid in a lot, a lot of pain, Mm -hmm. see your kid suffering, you're sleep deprived. I for sure have said things to my husband that I shouldn't have just you're tired and you lash out. Mm -hmm. And that. I wouldn't say it hurt our marriage. I think he was understanding. We would get in arguments and we would recover pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think overall it strengthened, mm. but there was times that it really, our marriage was almost put on hold because he was in Cincinnati and I was mm. in Kansas City or vice versa. Recover quickly. So I noticed you said that recover quickly. What What's the key? I think that's probably one of the keys, right? Because you see you're under high stress, no sleep, you lash out at each other. That could happen frequently if you're not sleeping and high stress, seeing your kids sick and your marriage is on hold. So what does that recovery process look like? After a specific argument? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think he knows me well enough that he knows how much I love our family. Mm-hmm. And so I don't even remember a specific argument, but we may just say choice words to each other mm-hmm. and we may go to a different room for a few minutes. But after a little bit, I don't like to leave things hanging. I'm not somebody mm-hmm. to um, not talk to somebody for days. I want to solve it. That's kind of how I am. So I go in and I'm like, I'm after sorry. After like a few minutes. Yeah, maybe even... Down. 30 minutes. I mean, it, you know, okay. it can okay. be a little bit of time, but go in and say, I'm sorry. I love you. 
please don't leave me. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes, I'm sorry. I love you. Please don't leave me. <laughs> and not that he's ever yeah. threatened that. Yeah. Um, but So you just make up quickly. You take And then time. again with his sarcasm, he's like, oh, it's okay. I'm just going to trade you in for a younger, hotter model. <laughs> Which doesn't exist. You know? <laughs> the hotter part doesn't exist. Okay. And so that kind of breaks the tension and then we're kind of fine. Okay. And so there's, there's no... There's no grudges held. You, you don't let things linger. You recover quickly. You apologize. He accepts your apology. Wow, okay. This is really hard. You make it sound so simple, but when you're sleep deprived and you don't know whether your child is gonna live or die, that's really hard to do. For doctors, the story has changed. Visit drpodcastnetwork.com forward slash locum story to see if a locum tenens assignment is right for you. It's here you'll find the unbiased answers you are after so you can decide if locum tenens is in your next chapter. What a lovely first half of the episode. We're going to stop right there and continue after Thanksgiving because I would love Thanksgiving to be sandwiched by Emmy since we are so grateful. So my take-home points from my bestie and sister since the third grade, Laura Hall. Number one, before telling bad news to your patient, imagine receiving this news for the first time as a patient yourself. Imagine that you have no idea what the words out of your mouth sound like or mean. I mean, you just get slapped in the face with fear. Fear of death. Fear of your child's death. Or severe, or fear of severe illness that may last forever. And ask yourself how you think a patient should handle this. Sometimes as physicians, we get used to telling our patients about some disease, and we forget that to them, this is their first time. We may get annoyed or irritated that they're not listening, they don't understand. They may say words to us we don't want to hear. And they don't know what we know. They, they don't always want to accept the diagnosis or want to do what we recommend. And that's okay. If this ever happens to you, just turn towards self-compassion. Number two. There is a lot we don't know in medicine. Medicine is not just a science, it's also an art. So we must remember that patients are not aware of how much we actually do not know. I remember when I first went to medical school and my friends started asking me questions and kind of expected me to know everything. I mean, I'd been studying for several years and, you know, why did I tell them things were bad but couldn't like explain in detail why, right? They might be irritated or angry or choose not to believe, and that's okay. So understanding that, you know, others are patients, that the parents of patients may be sad or angry or upset is okay. We don't have to take this as a personal attack on us or our profession. You know, and I think this comes up a lot in the time of COVID or post-COVID pandemic 2.0, 3.0, or whatever you want to call it, that some people don't want to get vaccinated because they think that's the best thing to do. Although as scientists, we know that's not correct, right? Or don't want to wear masks. These things that we just understand as physicians are not always understood as the patient. So once again, just accepting that this could be true is the first step. 
Allow your patients to be angry, irritated, sad, and even confused and overwhelmed. This is all okay and this is all normal. Number three, we may get into arguments and say choice words to to each other, to our spouse. But how can we recover? And how quickly do we want to cover? And what are the keys? Well, I think as demonstrated when Laura Hall discussed her and Ryan, number one, it appears that Laura's amazing at dropping her ego, something that can be very hard for physicians. Number two, they apologize. And then they make up and continue to love unconditionally. And that is it, my friends, until next week when we have part two. I hope you walk away asking yourself, do I want all the control of the things I have no control over? And what is that causing inside of me? Do I allow my patients to have all the feelings just as I have them all as well? Do I allow myself? Maybe I don't allow myself to have the feelings so I don't allow my patients to. Am I good at letting go of my ego? And how will I practice to get better? How do I recover after an argument with my spouse? Until next time, my friends, and if you like what you're learning, please share this episode with somebody else who you think will gain value. Leave me a five-star review if you deem necessary and write a little blurb would be so appreciated as that helps the algorithm for people to see my podcast. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss this. And if you do really want to practice some of the tools that I teach here, I extend this invitation to you to sign up for private coaching with me. I still have a few one-on-one spots available. Just imagine what it would feel like to be less misunderstood by your spouse and more appreciated in your marriage. To stop living with your roommate, to stop walking on eggshells, to no longer think that they need to change before you can change. No longer think you're the only one pulling your weight. No better time is now. And no better investment is worth it than the investment in yourself. And don't forget to join the party on Facebook. Medicine, Marriage, and Money is my Facebook group where we'd like to talk about all things medicine. We like to be fun, share memes, share our favorite parts of marriage and relationships. And then, of course, the 39.6 community, my husband's community where he talks about all things finance. Much love, my friends, to you and your spouse. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional, medical, or financial advice. The opinions provided on this podcast are those of myself or the invited guest alone. They do not represent the opinions of any particular institution. Always seek the advice of your physician or financial advisor with any questions you may have of a medical condition or financial plan. This is for your entertainment only.